Since 2009, SharesPost has been a leader in the secondary market for private company shares. With its network of 44,000 accredited investors and 150,000 members, SharesPost has transacted in more than 200 companies. Whether you're an investor or a shareholder looking for liquidity, SharesPost has a solution for you. Visit us at SharesPost.com. Coming up on Equity, the wave of IPOs continues. We'll break down the recent performance of Dropbox and a big week for the stock market. Welcome to Equity. I'm TechCrunch's Katie Roof. Uh, Matthew Lindley's off today. Crunchbase News Editor-in-Chief Alex Wilhelm. Hello. And our special guest today is Byron Dieter, who's a partner at Bessemer Venture Partners. Howdy all. Thank you for, for joining us. On this kind of auspicious week, I feel like we've been under kind of a news deluge in the last two weeks, and we're coming out of it, uh, I think, in worse shape than we started. There's more stuff to keep track of than ever before on the IPO markets in one point, during the life of the show, at least. This is a lot. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely been a lot busier this week than it has in prior weeks, and particularly for Enterprise, which is relevant for you. Although we do have Spotify next week doing whatever they're doing. We've talked about that a lot in the show, and we'll talk about it more next week, but they're doing a direct listing. But we we saw um, some filings lately. We saw DocuSign, which... If you were listening to the show last week, you would have known was coming because I broke the story. But um, now we saw the the financials for DocuSign. We also saw Pivotal and Smartsheet. But first, DocuSign. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Were you surprised? I mean, you're you're an investor in in DocuSign, is that right? So maybe not so surprised. Uh, we are, and I'll <laughs> note uh, we're small investors. So huge credit to uh, a number of the early investors who've been with this company for several years, and and the team with Steve and uh, Tom and Keith, uh, a lot of the early folks. Um, it's a huge business that has been lying below the surface and um, just building value over time. And under the Jobs Act, you actually don't yet see their 2018 financials. And I think the, uh, people are going to continue to be surprised. This is a huge High growth business. Can yeah, can you? Yeah, can you explain that a little bit? Because actually, someone just right before I came into the podcast, someone who works on IPOs is like, "What is this? What happened with the 2018 numbers?" So, can you can you explain what happened here at the the Jobs Act? Sure. So, one of uh, the, the few pieces of legislation that I think has achieved its intended purpose over the last few years has been trying to streamline the IPO process for um, early stage companies. Early stage defined on a number of criteria, but in this case, below a billion dollars is the rele- relevant one for them. So, if you contrast the Dropbox S one with the DocuSign or Zuor or Smartsheets S1s, you'll see different information disclosures because different burden of reporting for companies early in their life cycle. DocuSign's below a billion dollars and for the other criteria doesn't trigger um, the scale thresholds and therefore they can take advantage of Jobs Act, which means they can do a lot of um, leaner, more efficient reporting and they can also do some things around testing the waters and pre-marketing that companies historically weren't able to do. Yeah, and some of that even changed recently. I know that um, you couldn't find confidentially if you're under a billion dollars um, in, I mean, if you're over a billion dollars in revenue. And I know they actually changed that a little bit a few months back. But whatever it is, um, DocuSign's filing is here. And um, now we have, we so we have their finances, which I'll pull up. But um, were you surprised by them? I mean, they're still losing money, even though they've been around for 15 years. That's a um, long time. 15-year-olds can actually get a driver's permit in the United States. It takes right. a while to dominate the world. It, this is a big business they're building. 
Um, but I, I mean, the short answer is uh, I would encourage people to think of free cash flow over net income. This is one of the, the ongoing issues with gap accounting, which I don't love. But if you look at the core fundamentals of the business, what it's generating, you'll see that the capital efficiency has actually become quite good. The issue is that when you have you know, G&A and expenses that gap accounting requires you uh, to recognize differently, the net income lags. And so the leading indicator here is actually quite compelling. Their trailing growth was in the 50% range and free cash flow is, is gliding into um, to cash flow break even, which on an efficiency basis is pretty damn impressive. Yeah. So the numbers on the cash flow, um, they're, well, I'll call it fiscal year ending January 31, 2016. Call it fiscal 16. Fair enough. Okay. So they had negative ninety six point three million in free cash flow in fiscal sixteen, down to negative forty eight million in fiscal seventeen. But uh, operating cash flow burn was only four point eight million in fiscal seventeen, and that's the glide you're talking about. Very much so. And so roll that forward. Obviously, there's an entire other year that we haven't yet seen that will be revealed as part of the process. Um, yeah, I can't and wait. the trend lines are are extremely compelling, and I, I think that's I, the strength that they're leaning into. Also, I nearly cried when I was writing about this IPO because I didn't quite realize the fiscal year gap. <laughs> nearly <until> I... <laughs> cried when I was. Writing writing about this IPO. That was just a, a sentence that came out of Alex's mouth. I just wanted to Look. highlight that. <laughs> Tears Alex of joy, takes I'm his sure. job seriously and has a lot of emotion invested in this stuff. It really encapsulated my personality into a sentence. I think Katie grabbed the right one. Um, <laughs> Uh, but I didn't ma- I didn't really notice the the weird fiscal years until I was halfway through, and I was writing like last year in my piece, and then I freaked out in the middle of this, nearly had a panic attack, and I had to redo the whole damn thing on the fly. It, Dang thing! It Sorry. happens all the time. <laughs> the the fiscal year offset Salesforce started this with the one month stagger to try to get out of the Q4 December craziness, and you end up having two quarters to close in because you still have the December craziness, and then you have the January craziness, um, and so it it I make that same mistake all the time. By the way, when I'm looking at financials for new potential investments. So you have to deconstruct it. And the reality is we are missing 14 months of financial still in what has been revealed public so today. Like, yeah, there weren't, yeah, there there wasn't a lot there revealed. I mean, we saw that they had $381.5 million in revenue, which was up from $250.5 million the year before. That's actually a pretty significant increase. Um, and then losses still went, went actually went down uh, despite... The, the significant increase in revenue, which sometimes is harder to do, so that they lost $115.4 million in revenue, down from $122.6 million the year before. So, But those were the 2017 and 2016 fiscal year numbers. Um, one thing that I was a little bit surprised about is that the largest shareholder was Sigma Partners, owning about 13% of the company. Uh, Ignition Partners owned almost 12%. Frazier... Technology ventures. Frazier, yep. I owned 7%. But we didn't see like Kleiner Perkins or Scale or some of the other uh, people that are on the board of DocuSign in the filing because they didn't own enough. They didn't own 5%. Yeah, there's a key investor threshold of 5% disclosure. This is a business that's raised over half a billion dollars in their life, and so there's a lot of shareholders on the cap table. Um, and as a result, you see those early shareholders that were sizable and didn't sell along the way still being rewarded with large ownership stakes. The other investors who either bought in below the 5% threshold and or were diluted below the 5% threshold through other investors or selling are, are rolled down. That doesn't mean anything less to, to Mary Meeker or Rory on the board. They're hugely valuable. They're going to, you know, uh, they're going to realize meaningful gains, um, just not at the 5% threshold. I had a question about um, sales and marketing spend. So if you're not really into finances, skip the next one minute. Um, they spent uh, 200 and I think it was $40.8 million on sales and marketing in fiscal 17, which was up $70 million from fiscal 16, um, which is an insane 63% of their revenue for the period. And they only compound at 115% uh, after you take away some churn. So that's kind of a really adjusted uh, 
dollar retention metric. So I'm kind of curious how they can feel so confident pouring that amount of capital into into growth. And if this was so, your company, so your your version of insane may be someone else's version of strategically aggressive. That's what, okay. <laughs> and so am I too conservative when I see those numbers because they, they seem high to me for a company of this level of maturity and scale? Uh, they're big numbers, and certainly they have an expensive go to market model. The flip is what's the customer lifetime value? And this is a business that's extremely sticky. Everyone needs it. It's a true horizontal, and they want to dominate the planet. They very much want this to be ubiquitous, and so their point of view is to go out there and get those beachheads in these big accounts and then get the upsells, get the renewals, et cetera. And as you said uh, yourself, you start to see the free cash flow coming down. When we see the last 14 months of financials, I strongly suspect there'll be continued improvement there. And so you'll have a business that's growing you know, between 30 and 50% that's basically cash flow break even. Um, if you just straight line their numbers, you're sitting at, call it 600 million of ARR today. That's an ex- incredibly impressive business model. And if you can scale at that level, you absolutely want to continue to lean into the distribution model and acquire the, the customers through sales and marketing. Let's talk a little bit about what DocuSign does. I assume a lot of the people listening know, but we have people all over the world listening. Um, I mean, it's an e-signature service. They help uh, people do sign documents online, which is which is important because there's a lot of documents to be signed in all sorts of jobs, whether it's legal or other other businesses. And I know it's big in real estate as well. Um, and, and they really have worked with a lot of large enterprises to get people using DocuSign, but they have competition. Uh, in particular, they compete with Adobe, uh, which bought EchoSign. Jason Lemkin, who was the first guest ever on our Equity podcast, started that. And uh, they and, and then Adobe bought them a while a while back um, and has since grown that business. And DocuSign acknowledged in their filing that Adobe is their biggest competitor. There's also HelloSign, which is which is growing. But, um, you know, you could say that there's a big market opportunity for this, but you also have to do some analysis on the competitive landscape as well. And um, it, but DocuSign is for sure the name that everyone associates with, associates with this kind of service because they were an early pioneer here. Very much so. I mean, any prize worth having is going to have competition. You look at the Echo Sign and the dozens of low end e signature solutions, and and low there's end, huh? uh, low end, not not uh, sorry, not in a derogatory in terms of value, but in terms of market segment. Um, uh, DocuSign that is part of their solution. That's where they started in e signature. Um, they are higher end in terms of their segment, mid market and enterprise strength, but much more importantly, that's just a small part of their solution day. So they talk about digital transaction management, and the term that Dan used recently, which I love, is sort of this system of agreement, which is they are the application and the related uh, transaction management around the signature, the document storage, the workflow, the approvals. They do things that no one else can. And so, yes, the the um, they're becoming the industry term. You know, did you DocuSign that just like did you Google that? However, they're also the workflow and the enterprise system that can manage the entire um agreement relationship, and no one else comes close there. And that's why they, they can do both. They can absolutely own that e-sig market and everything above it. I mean, it's it's, it's definitely a thing. I mean, um, I once dated a lawyer who was extremely upset that his company didn't use DocuSign. I heard about it a lot. So it could save a lot of people a lot of time. You don't have to be printing documents and emailing documents. I signed two to three things a day in my business on this. Board consents, new investment, um, deal docs, etc. And it is a game changer for not having to go to some damn fax machine at midnight in a hotel room in Wichita when uh, to, to deal with a document. Man, your life sounds exciting. Oh, <laughs> glamorous what tech are you travel. in Wichita? Uh, I'm on board seats all over the country, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, well, anyways, the last thing on DocuSign for me is that it's a, a, a 
feature that actually was a company, not the other way around, you know, which is, I, I would have actually got that wrong looking at the market. Um, but there are more companies out there, two of which have recently filed, uh, Pivotal Software and uh, Smart Sheets. So going to give the really quick, uh, for one on Smart Sheet for us, they're based in Bellevue, which is kind of near Microsoft, but also not Seattle. It's up in that uh, kind of nerd. It's close to Seattle. It's, yeah, you can drive there and traffic, it's about three hours without traffic, no, about 25 really? minutes. Really? No, it's I mean, traffic is just super <laughs> I think it's bad. it's pretty close. I haven't been there recently, but I've been there and I don't remember it taking very long. Without traffic, it's like 20 minutes. Um, <laughs> so just some other notes, they've raised about $106 million across their life, uh, which is not that much for the type of companies that we usually talk about. Now, on the revenue side of things, they had $111.3 million in top line during their fiscal year ending January 31, 2018, because like every other SaaS company, that's how they roll now. Thank you, Salesforce. That was up 66% from the preceding fiscal year, $66.9 million, which was in turn up 64% from the year before. So, increasing amounts of growth on a percentage basis from a higher base. And uh, going back to our favorite SaaS metric dollar-based net retention, 130% year-over-year and critically, quote, for all customers. So no funny business cutting out certain amounts of your customer base to make your churn look better. Uh, they're not cheating. And um, it's a Beautiful non- numbers, by the way. Oh, I, just, I love nuts, that. right? So that I think that one's going to do fine um, if I had to put a dollar on it. And then uh, the big question for us is Pivotal Software, which is a beast. Um, raised like $1.7 billion and uh, loses a lot of money and did over a half uh, billion in rev last year. But Katie, how was this company kind of brought to life? Yeah, it's had a few phases, but... Um it was. It was. It came out. It's majority owned by Dell, but that's because um, it had something to do with Dell and EMC's merger, and um, it, it was spun off from Dell, EMC, and VMware a few years back. After that, it went on to raise 1.7 billion in funding from Microsoft, Ford, and General Electric. So it kind of has quite a few corporate corporations that it's associated with, but it's definitely not your typical venture-backed IPO. Uh, and they have a lot of revenue. They brought in $509.4 million in revenue for its fiscal year ending in February, and this compares to $416.3 million for 2017 and, and $280.9 million the year before. So their revenue is growing uh, at a good pace, and um, but they're losing a lot of money. They lost 163.5 million for this fiscal year, but it's also significantly improved from the 232.5 million the year before. So the, their margins are improving, and they're still growing. So that's good. Yeah, um, the margin improvements nuts. So yeah. uh, two years ago they had 33% gross margins. Then two years uh, last year 44, and then in 55 in the most recent year, which is a weird ramp. But it turns out their revenue mix is now 50-50 subscription and service. So there's a huge cost basis there. Right, they're trying to work themselves into a software business. This is a big infrastructure platform with a lot of bodies involved in the early days, and so they're now getting the leverage in that. Um, I still think that it's an extremely valuable business, but on a relative basis, if you're looking at some of the others they're up against, they're growing slower, lower gross margin and higher uh, free cash flow consumption. Uh, I think they're going <laughs> to... Other than that, what, what good do you have to say about them? Uh, it's a great lineup, but, but I got to say, they're at the bottom of my list for this crew. Uh, I think that's everyone's everyone's agreement. Also, they only have $73 million in cash on hand, and they consume so much cash. They're going public not because they can, but they because, need the money. because they absolutely need the money. <laughs> They've got some big kid brothers, though, and, and rich yeah, uncles. So it's, it's not going out of business anytime soon. However, it's the logical time. The reason why they did this spin out and this net new entity was to create a separate company. And as a reminder, VMware was the spin into EMC before the spin out, which was one of the most successful acquisitions in history. And 
as it's playing out, we'll see in the privatization of Dell uh, if the spin out is also wildly successful in the separation. But they've been pretty good with their financial engineering historically, and I expect nothing less in this case. On that front, though, Dell may go public again through kind of a reverse IPO. I think, is it VMware, the vehicle for that? I forget how the nuance of this all spins out, but there's some weird troika of EMC, Dell, and VMware somewhat going public and owning one another. It's a crazy another. complex deal. Only the folks at Silver Lake understand it, frankly. And <laughs> so I don't think they <laughs> we'll, do. we'll break that down on a future podcast episode. But meanwhile, I mean, clearly there are a lot of IPOs coming up. There's also a few uh, Chinese IPOs listing in the U.S. this week, Chinese tech IPOs, yeah. which we saw a lot of last year. And I think, you know, I've been hearing that trend is going to continue. And then, um, of course, we, we've already broken down a few of the other filings like but last week we saw Dropbox finally debut and it was a really good debut we we broke it down a little bit on on Friday right when it was in its first day of trading but um, it's still maintained its higher share price uh, as, as of this moment it's 3125 uh, by the time you're listening on Friday it might be Higher or it could be lower. We don't know. But it, that's regardless, it's significantly higher than the 21 per share that they priced at. And the 21 per share that they priced at was also higher than the range that they had that they had been hoping for. Um, and it is above their market cap is well above that that 10 billion dollar uh point that they had raised at at their last private valuation, although the stock market has also gone up significantly since then. So what it doesn't look that great when you compare it to what they could have been investing in the later stage investors. But it is a relevant data point that people like to talk about. What do you what do you think about Dropbox's performance? Right. Well, one in an absolute sense, it's a wildly valuable company um, sitting at twelve or thirteen billion uh, today, and um, huge credit to all the uh, team and investors. Obviously, the $29 mark was meaningful because if you include the future dilution from that $10 billion raise, back of the envelope says about $12 billion is what they needed to clear to be um, net neutral from that investment you know, three and a half or four years ago. And so, um, impressively, they've traded up and above that mark. And so, those investors are made whole. Obviously, you don't want to rent your money for free for uh, several years in, in what has been a, an extremely uh, profitable bull market in other areas. But they didn't lose money, and, and they had a call option on, on the upside for a, a, a great business. And then the early investors, obviously, and the team members, most importantly, who uh, control most of the business still today, um, are now sitting on you know billions collectively. And uh, that's a great outcome for a highly valuable business. Here's the thing, though. It's its trailing price sales multiple, which is one of my favorite metrics to track for all the enterprise SaaS companies, is over 12. Trailing doesn't matter. What matters is the future. People aren't buying this for current cash flow. It's what are they going to do? Right. I wasn't trying to make that point. I was just trying to give a kind of a market comp to other companies that are also valued mostly in your eyes on future earnings, but are also have these metrics. Yeah. I, mean, I, I could I could pause and calculate their current ARR for you, and then do that if you'd like that number better. Uh, the point it's still is, a big number. Compared, hey, call it a billion three, which puts them you know sitting at ten x plus on a run rate ARR, which is a big number. Go. Exactly. Totally which, fair. Is, which is quite high compared to both historical norms and the current market reality at all time highs. So I'm a little bit curious if this is a bit of enthusiasm in the market or fundamentals because they. Only only grew 31% in the last year, which is a trailing metric, but one that does, in fact, ahem, matter. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Touche. I mean, I mean, Dropbox is killing it and props to them, but I mean, I, I'm curious. This is what you call a financial fight. No, it's not. <laughs> we, we we were all at dinner the other week. We got along just I know. fine. It's a big group I'm just, hug. I'm just trying to create drama to make oh, our podcast yeah. more interesting. What, what would nerd drama be like, though, on this show? I don't even know. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll spread each other to death. Well, here's the way I think of it. Public investors don't expect to make a 50 
50% return. And yet here's a business growing north of 30% and throwing off you know 300 million plus in free cash flow. So to make the numbers easy, call it 25%, uh, depending on stock-based comp, how you think of that. And so an efficiency score, they're building value north of 50% a year. So you can absorb some multiple compression over the next couple of years and still come out really well with by holding that security. And th- that's how we think about it, which is someone who's investing at 10x run rate right now doesn't expect to exit necessarily at 10x run rate, but this their stock position can still double over the coming years and absorb that compression. Yep, absolutely. I mean, like we've seen box have enormous share price gyrations, even with relatively steady growth. And so we can see the market do that. But even if they have the negative bent that you're talking about, they'll be fine. Yeah, and that was the segue too. That was the Freudian slip with Box as well. Often compared, and again, uh, Box is sitting there at three billion plus today, um, and you know, building out their model, they don't get quite the same multiple as Dropbox, but also highly valuable. Yeah, free cash flow positive, but less so. They're growing, but slightly less so from a lower revenue base, and that's why they have a smaller multiple. Makes yeah, sense. I mean, they're more yes. similar from a product perspective than a business model perspective, and so Dropbox actually really downplayed them in their filing because they were hoping to be care- compared more to like an Atlassian or um, some other company that they they have more of a freemium model. but The interesting <laughs> thing is it's almost the inverse of our prior discussion on EchoSign DocuSign, where DocuSign mm-hmm. has the high end, EchoSign has the, the mass market low end, Dropbox has the mass market low end, Box has the enterprise high end, um, and the business models are, are slightly different, but I think the analogy holds. Yeah, except that Box costs, it, it costs Box a lot to maintain that high end, and they have to spend more on sales and marketing relative to the revenue that they're, they're generating. But... We can move on now and talk about the the other companies that are on the stock market already and and the volatile ride they've had this week. Uh, Microsoft went up a bit one day because one analyst, Morgan Stanley, says now that he thinks that they're going to be priced in a way that they'll be at a $1 trillion market cap within a year, which w- everyone's been wondering, you know, who's going to be the first to a trillion? Is it Apple? Is it Alphabet? Is it Amazon? But Microsoft is not the name that I normally hear, but their stock went up because it's Morgan Stanley and they said that. So how much fun do you think that analyst had that day? He's like, guys, watch this. Microsoft, crystal ball, one trillion, boom, $50 billion in value instantly created because he had too many Diet Cokes the night before and couldn't sleep, so he wrote a goddamn report. Okay. I, don't know, I don't know if that's true or not, but that's how I saw it It's in my like mind. the Amazon callback in the bubble that shot the stock up massively in one day. And that's why it'd be fun to be an analyst, but you can't tweet, so that's no good. Um, so I pulled up some data here. So of the big five, what we call them, Apple, Amazon, Facebook, Alphabet, and Microsoft. Um, Microsoft is worth 702, according to the Google Finance API which puts it essentially tied for last place with Amazon, Alphabet's 717, Apple's 850, and then somewhere down there, Facebook is 464 because they've had a bad couple of weeks. But I mean... I mean, and they, they were a little lower to begin with, but but yeah, I mean, there's definitely four that are in, in neck and neck, so to speak. I guess Apple's the closest, but uh, there's there's a few that have a shot at one trillion in the not too distant future. Well, one one meaningful milestone I I want to highlight for you is for the first time in history, about a year and a half ago, um, for the first time, and then consistently now we cross this point where the five or six most valuable companies in the world are all venture-backed tech companies. And Alibaba is the uh, six, and they're neck and neck with Facebook, depending on the market cap of the day with the recent news. But to think about that, tech is really driving the economy and the modern economy. 
money. And so it's it's a question of which of that group will be the first trillion dollar company. And that's an amazing milestone. But this it's is true. This you is Silicon a lot Valley of value. Drive. Well, now, now you've jinxed it. Now it's going to be like <laughs> GE's going to come back from the dumpster and beat us all. Berkshire Hathaway, I mean, Chevron. Those were the names. I mean, JP Morgan. Those used to be the names that were in the top five. That's yeah. true. It is a great point. And I mean, it, it really shows that the venture model has worked for, for some of the larger companies for sure. It really helped them scale in their early days and get to the point where uh, they are on the stock market and then have done well on the stock market. Obviously, there are many venture-backed companies that have not fared as well. But um, for sure, the the top ones right now are... are None of ours, Katie. They, they all <laughs> go public and are among the top five in the world. <laughs> I, I think that should be your trademark. Um, but the, the context for all of this is that the markets have finally rediscovered volatility. And we have seen, uh, in the last couple of months, some insane, awesome, new, beautiful NASDAQ highs, the tech-heavy index that we all love to track. And we've also seen some NASDAQ declines, although what really kind of makes me giggle is that everyone goes, oh, the NASDAQ you know, got punched again today. It's down to 7,000. It's like, yeah, but it's down to 7,000. That's enormous. I mean, we hit 5K for literally a hot second in 2000 before the epic uh, you know, Siberian winter that came into the tech world after that. But I mean, 7Gs for the Nasdaq is fantastic. But yeah, it matters yeah. for day traders. I mean, out here, we don't meet as many day traders. Everyone is vest- investing on like a 10 or 15 year horizon. But, um, but you know, I it's mean, there cryptocurrency were still- now. Yeah. I was going to say, I, think, <laughs> I know some of those nerds that don't go outside much. That's true. That's the, the kind of day trading they do out here in, the, in Silicon Valley. But um, but yeah, I mean, you know, there were definitely some big swings on the stock market last week. Part of it had to do with concerns over a trade war with China, and then and that changed. But we've seen some fluctuations. Our president takes credit when it goes up, but not not when it goes down. But um, but you know, in general, the stock market has done really, really well over the past almost a decade, which has some people concerned because because I mean, you know, these things don't go up forever. No, no. Although I did just grab. If you want to have a little fun uh, at home, here's a homework assignment. Go grab a max Microsoft timed stock chart and take a look at the last like three years and ask yourself how sustainable that looks just at a gut level. And I think that summarizes my entire view of the market. Sorry, Byron. Um, I think I think we're due for a little cold water and a little cold weather, and all it is is sunshine and heat, and that terrifies me. I hope we've got a little bit of a run left. Come on, nine and a half years. You don't call it yet. That's nuts. Nine and a half. That's like complaining about Nasdaq seven thousand. You've gotten so much more than you should get. And we're st- Bird, a scooter company just raised $100 million. That's your asset class. You're, you're taunting me because I literally birded over here. <laughs> Little did you know I had inside did. information. <laughs> the backlog of companies, though, is awesome. And I absolutely think if the market holds, the floodgates are blowing open. That this backlog of these unicorns and decacorns um, who've been waiting to go public, the time is now. And I think they realize it. Yeah, they really should go now because the stock market has done well for a while and there's a lot of unicorns and recent tech IPOs like Dropbox and several others have done well. So Zscaler did well. So it's it's time. It's time. Do not chicken out if you're an IPO. And I know a future IPO. I know that VCs will thank me for that. And I, yeah, I mean, you know, content, some, so, something for me to write about. But I mean, really, it's I, I just think that now... I genuinely believe that now is a good time to go if you're seriously considering going public. And on that note, thanks for tuning in. Come back next week. Special thanks to our producer, TechCrunch's own Christopher Gates, our executive producer, Henry Pickovet. Thank you to Katie Roof. Thank you to Matthew Lindley. And thank you to you for leaving us that five-star iTunes review. That's Equity. We'll see you all next Friday. <laughs>